Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is October the 26th, 2018. This is episode 2318 of the Survival Podcast. And it is Friday, 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 and so it is the Monster Show of the Week. We have questions and answers this week for the expert council. i got a pretty good variety set up for you. Here's what we're going to be talking about today. Uh, a question on protein shakes and weight loss for Gary Collins of The Simple Life Now. What you need to know about Lyme disease, hype versus reality from old Doc Bones. Silver ETFs and other hedge strategies for market corrections with John Pugliano. How to accept crypto payments on your website is a form of payment with Benjamin Fitz of Crypto Gulch. And career planning for coming-of-age teens. This is really being asked on behalf of uh, a homeschool uh, young man. But I think this applies to all young people, and not just teens, honestly, you know, going into your early 20s. There's a, there's a period in your life where you have more freedom than you'll ever realize. It really sums up uh, youth is wasted on the young. Um, I'd say from about 16 to 22, man, that's that's like golden time to try millions of different things and figure out what you really want in your life and, and, and set out on a good positive path and learn as much as you can. Um, as you can tell, I like that question. Mike and Sue do a bang-up job on it, but I liked it so much. I picked it for my bookend anchor. Uh, my segment today, instead of taking a random question out of, of the audience, questions that are in there for me, um, I'm going to talk about this because I love this type of thing. And I, I just think back and go, God, I wish somebody would have talked to me about this stuff, you know, when, when I was that age. I really do. So we'll have a great ending to the show today. Um, and with that, let's go ahead and take a look at a year in history before we get into your questions. Um, it was really easy for me to pick uh, the day in history segment today when I saw what the lead one was on history channel, because it's the shootout at the OK Corral, the actual one, not the one in the movies. Uh, but the movies were, some of the movies aren't that far off, and I'm going to talk about one of the movies here in a minute. Uh, it had some embellishments and stuff like that, but the, the core story was actually pretty spot on, as you'll see here. Uh, but on, anyway, on this day in 1881, the Earp brothers faced off against the Clanton McClary gang in a legendary shootout at the OK Corral in Tombstone, Arizona. After silver was discovered nearby in 1877, Tombstone quickly grew into one of the richest mining towns in Southwest. Wyatt Earp, a former Kansas police officer working as a bank security guard, and his brothers Morgan and Virgil, the town marshal, uh, represented law and order in Tombstone, though they had reputations for being power-hungry and ruthless. The Clantons and McClowries were cowboys who lived on a ranch outside of town and sidelined as cattle rustlers, thieves, and murderers. In October 1881, the struggle between these two groups for control of Tombstone in Cochise County ended in a blaze of gunfire at the OK Corral. On this morning, October 25th, uh, Ike Clanton and Tom McClary came into, uh, or on the morning of October 25th, Clanton and McClary came into Tombstone for supplies. Over the next 24 hours, the two men had several violent run-ins with the Earps and their friend Doc Holliday. Around 1.30 on October 26th, Ike's brother Billy rode into town to join them along with Frank McClary and Billy Claiborne. Uh, the first person they met at the local saloon was Holiday, who was delighted to inform them that their brothers had both been pistol-whipped by the Earps. 
Frank and Billy immediately left the saloon vowing revenge. Around 3 p.m., the Herbs and Holiday spotted the five members of the Clint McClary gang in a vacant lot behind the OK Corral at the end of Fremont Street. The famous gunfight that ensued lasted all of 30 seconds, and around 30 shots were fired, though it's still debated who fired the first shot, most reports say. The shootout began when Virgil Earp pulled out his revolver and shot Billy Clanton point-blank in the chest, while Doc Holliday fired a shotgun blast into McClowry's chest. Though Wyatt Earp Earp wounded Frank McClowry with a shot in the stomach, Frank managed to get off a few shots before collapsing, as did Billy Clanton. When the dust cleared, Billy Clanton and the McClowry brothers were dead, and Virgil and Morgan Earp and Doc Holliday were wounded. I, Clanton, and Claiborne had run for the hills. Sheriff John Behan of Cochise County, who witnessed the shootout, charged the Earps and Holiday with murder. A month later, however, a tombstone judge found the men not guilty, ruling that they were, quote, fully justified in committing these homicides, end quote. The famous shootout has been immortalized in many movies, including Frontier Marshal in 1939, Gunfight at the OK Corral in 1957, Tombstone in 1993, and Wyatt Earp in 1994. The, the Wyatt Earp one that included a lot of the Tombstone stuff, but a lot of the prior stuff uh, previous to that um, was actually really, uh, in many ways, very close to uh, a narrative that was based on known history. Uh, you know, some stuff in there that was bullshit for Hollywood as well, but it was much more true to reality. Tombstone was kind of all centered around this whole story and had a lot of embellishments and stuff like that and things that never happened, but it did actually have, if you remember the movie, the core story. This movie, for me, though, has one moment in it. One moment in it that is one of the most truthful lines spoken in a movie ever that may not have been spoken by the actual people that were represented as characters in this. It may have never happened. Um, Though I do know that uh, Wyatt Earp ended up writing a a book called My Friend Doc Holliday. And so many of you that have seen the movie know where I'm going with this. There's a point where um, Wyatt's got his gang put together. He sent his brothers and, and their wives on. And, uh, well, his one brother, his other brother died. Uh, but he sends uh, Virgil and his wife and, and the women on. And he's got this group of guys and they're out hunting down uh, this gang. And Doc Holliday is, is literally dying of tuberculosis at this time. That's what happened when you got tuberculosis. Eventually you coughed the rest of your lungs up and you died. And one of the guys says to Doc, he says, Doc, what the hell are you doing out here? What are you doing out here? I mean, you should be in bed. You should be home. And Doc turns to him. Of course, Val Kilmer's the guy that's playing the character. And he says, Wyatt Earp is my friend. And the one guy says, well, hell, Doc, I got lots of friends. And Doc says, I don't. And that that actually has stuck with me so hard because I don't think I've ever been watching just a purely entertaining movie that I had no desire to extract anything from. That I, The minute I heard that, I identified with it so strongly. I got a lot of people I know, a lot of people I like, a lot of people I'll help out, but friends like that, it's a short list. And, uh, and that's why I think I'm so dedicated to them and so loyal to them, because, yeah, I know a lot of people think that way. I think we just define friends a little differently. Now, on the the actual characters in this, and I'm talking about the original characters, Earps and uh, the McClowries, etc., I think everybody has tried to look at this and say, well, who is really the bad guy here? You know what, guys? Just because two sides fight doesn't make either one of them right. I think in this case what you had is basically two forms of, of early uh, early organized crime, 
Uh, and the herbs having the the auspice or the the, the camouflage of being law law-abiding law enforcement and, and you know having respectable jobs. Uh, but in the end, I think both of them were probably the bad guys in this. W was it maybe possible that one side was a little worse? Yeah, yeah. And I think looking at the totality of what we know, it was probably the Clantons and McClowries. Probably. Not definitely. Anyway, you know, the more things change, the more they stay the same. We still have people out there battling each other, and some of them are under the cloak and the auspice of authority and elected officials and et cetera. And that doesn't mean there's not a lot of good in that. And then some of them in the outlaw community, the direct outlaws, and you know what? Some of them aren't so bad either. It all, it all depends on what you know and uh, what's really going on, and that's often hard to discern. As we always say with history, the more things change, the more they stay the same. With that, let's go ahead and hear from Gary Collins here today uh, with a segment on protein shakes. Gary, take it away. Hey, everyone. This is Gary Collins, creator of TheSimpleLifeNow.com, where I sell all of my best-selling books on life simplification, going off the grid, RV living, and many, many more coming on the way. And health, optimal health, primal, paleo, low-carb, I mix them all together because I don't think any which one is, is right. I use my own philosophy, as you guys know, with the question today about getting on track and weight loss. I've always prescribed to people in the very beginning to replace lunch with a protein shake. It's just the easiest way. I've had the best results with it. Um, and the difference between a meal replacement and a protein shake, I discussed that in another um, question And basically, try and stay away from meal replacements. They tend to be on the garbagey end. Um, they're more of that high-blown marketing and for weight loss and all that. And a protein shake is pretty much exactly what it is, a protein shake. And with that being said, what do, I, do I recommend? Well, I sell them. I've been selling supplements for years and years, and it started with clients derailing all the hard work we used to put in. They'd go to Costco or wherever, Walmart, and buy the crappiest supplements they could find, derail everything we were doing. So that's where it started from. And it derived from all the stuff I take. So everything I sell is stuff that I've taken for years and I know that works. I have grass-fed uh, whey protein, vanilla, chocolate, and also plain organic. And then I also have, for people who have issues with dairy, I've had very good success with this too, is, is pumpkin seed protein powder. I love that one. I've been taking that for years now, and that's how I found it, was me using it. Now, with that, an institution, or putting together a plan to stay on track, and I preach this all the time, and matter of fact, I just wrote a section for a new book I'm putting out about uh, getting your health in order. People look at health as a diet and things to do from time to time. Health is about putting in a plan, sticking with that plan, and making it a part of your life. It, I can't make it any simpler than that. If you're going to yo-yo diet, the statistics and the research has shown time and time and time again, you end up screwing up your metabolism and you end up gaining more. People who do yo-yo diets and diet on and off will actually gain more weight than they weighed before over the long term. So it has to be a lifestyle. And I just, I'm, I'm always 
fascinated why someone wouldn't want to be as healthy as they possibly could be to me. That just makes sense. You're so much more productive. Uh, life is so much easier. You get, uh, I mean, better relationships, cognitive function, it, it just the whole gamut. Everything starts with your health. And that's what I teach people about trying, who are trying to be more successful, be entrepreneurs, do live the life they want to live. I go, you got to start with your health. It's the elephant in the room that no one wants to address, or if they address it, they want the easy button. Doesn't happen that way. I know, got on my soapbox there for a second. But I hope that helps. Uh, guys, make sure to go check out if you have any, you know, supplement questions. I carry supplement. I've been selling them forever, like I said in the beginning. They're on my website at thesimplelifenow.com. And also, all MSB members get 10% off all their orders, free shipping, as always, and usually get your orders within two to three days. I send everything priority. Hope that helps, guys. And if you have any questions or comments, send them to Jack, or you can email me at my website. Thanks. And I just my little addition there is I do have a link to Gary's uh, supplement line in the show notes for today's show. But, of course, you can find everything that Gary does at thesimplelifenow.com. Uh, good answers from Gary. Next up, I have a question on Lyme disease for old Doc Bones. Doc, take it away. Hi, Joe Alden, MD here, also known as Dr. Bones of Survival Top 50's Reader's Choice website, doomandbloom.net, where you'll find over a 1,000 articles, videos, and podcasts on medical preparedness for any disaster. I'm also the co-author, along with my lovely wife, Nurse Amy, of the 2017 Book Excellence Award winner in medicine, The Survival Medicine Handbook, the essential guide for when medical help is not on the way. Also, the upcoming Alton's Antibiotics and Infectious Disease, a guide to the wise use of drugs in austere settings, as well as an entire line of quality medical kits and supplies at store.doomandbloom.net. This week's question for the expert counsel is from Kieran, who asks, is Lyme disease really the fastest growing vector disease in damp, temperate climates of Europe and parts of the USA? Should people be worried about it? What should people do to prevent it? Or is Lyme becoming a name to describe a heap of unrelated chronic illnesses, similar to how in previous generations the word cancer was used to describe often unknown diseases? Thanks again, Kieran, also known as Michael, on the podcast comments. Well, you know what? We are back in the Great Smoky Mountains, and we're doing a lot of hiking. And sure enough, the great outdoors is a wonderful place, but not without its risks. And not just the risk of falling off a cliff or drowning in the ocean, but the risk of infectious disease. We discuss a lot of them in our upcoming book, and one that has both short and long-term effects is Lyme disease spread through the bite of ticks infected with the bacterium Borrelia burgdorferi. Lyme disease can be found on both coasts, and the ticks that carry the bacterium have expanded their number and territory greatly over the past two decades. That's not just according to me, but the CDC as well. So yes, Kieran, Lyme is running rampant in a lot of places. We would do well to be concerned about it. Most humans are infected through the bites of juvenile ticks called nymphs, so tiny they're very difficult to see. The adults can spread the disease, but they are luckily identified and eliminated earlier and more often. Lyme disease transmission is a process that takes usually about 24 to 48 hours, so the faster you find the tick, the less likely you'll get the disease. 
Lyme disease has a variety of signs and symptoms, some of which are seen early, say the first two or three weeks, and others that occur over months and maybe even years. The infection is diagnosed based on recognizing these symptoms. That's not always easy. Even trained medical professionals often miss the diagnosis. The chronic version of Lyme, sure enough, has all sorts of different symptoms affecting areas like nerves, joints, the heart, the brain, and all sorts of other places. And as you say, there's a question as to whether all of these cases are actually Lyme. We're just not very good at treating chronic Lyme, but simple treatments like antibiotics could have nipped it in the bud early with just a little bit of vigilance. Watch for typical early symptoms, which include fever, headache, fatigue, and often a skin rash called erythema migrans that looks like a bullseye that sort of spreads out over time. It's easier to prevent Lyme disease than treat it, that's for sure. Use insect repellent like DEET or lemon eucalyptus oil. Apply pesticides like permethrin, P-E-R-M-E-T-H-R-I-N, to clothing. Watch what you're brushing against on the trail and look for and remove ticks ASAP after you get inside. As far as treating Lyme disease, antibiotics can indeed kill the microbe that caused it. The antibiotics commonly used include those that are available indeed in avian and aquatic form, things we also talk about in our book, doxycycline, bird biotic, 100 milligrams twice a day orally, amoxicillin, 500 milligrams three times a day orally, that's also called fish mox. Other antibiotic options include azithromycin, erythromycin, and some others, all of which we discuss in Alton's Antibiotics and Infectious Disease. Remember, for a full recovery, early treatment is the key. Find out more about tick bite prevention and treatment in our YouTube video at DR Bones Nurse Amy channel and indeed the Survival Medicine Handbook's third edition and our new book. This is Joe Alton, MD, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health in good times or bad. Thanks for listening. And hey, don't forget to check out Nurse Amy's entire line of medical kits and supplies at store.doomandbloom.net. You'll be glad you did. Don't forget that the Member Support Brigade gets a discount on anything in our store at store.doomandbloom.net. Thanks again. Good stuff from Bones. I think that there's a, there's a mixture with severity and hype in, in the, the world of Lyme disease. I think it's a legitimate threat. I, I pretty much agree with everything that, that Joe said there. Um, I do think, though, that it gets over... Concern, like people just get way too wacky about it, like most things. Uh, in the end, there might be what you would think of as a lot of it, uh, but there's a hell of a lot less Lyme disease, for instance, than there probably is like, you know, coronary heart disease. Um, and it, it's amazing that sometimes people worry so much about something, and people worry about it that never go in the woods. Um, you know, using a good repellent and, and, you know, do the monkey thing, check each other for ticks after you go. Um, it, the, the, like, like he said, though, the big concern is the little bitty ticks that you don't see are the ones that you miss. Uh, generally, a larger tick you find pretty quick and get it off you. Uh, in any case of doubt, go ahead and, and, and see your physician and take a course of antibiotics early on. And like he said, a lot of times that just uh, ends the problem before it becomes one, which is the best way to deal with problems. Next up, uh, and I have some serious concerns about the market right now. I think... Right now, the stock market is terrified of the election results. There's a lot of optimism uh, planned in or, or priced into the stock market right now uh, that involves Trump and Trump policies. And you can hate him or love him, but when it comes to making an economy boom, he's, he's doing pretty well at it. And the question then becomes, will he be able to continue this if the, if the Democrats take over the House, even if the Republicans maintain the Senate? 
Not so much that they'll impeach him. I, I think that's way overplayed right now, and I think a lot of the people that think that's going to happen are nuts, and I think a lot of people that that really believe it uh, are under underestimating the number of Democrats who aren't completely nuts in the House. I don't think you get a vote for impeachment unless something else comes out or happens. Um, but what you could get is miles and miles of red tape with investigations and basically choking Congress down, and then can that lead to the failure of Donald Trump to get reelected? Markets watching this carefully because a lot of a, there's a lot of money pouring into this country right now, and I think if you reverse some of the decisions that Trump made, it could stop or go back. And, and and so a lot of this optimism that's in the in the price into the market uh, is of great concern. John's going to actually talk about that particular dynamic next week, but I think it's leading to a lot of these questions around hedging against loss with your investments, specifically some people asking about silver and silver ETFs. So with that, I'm going to go ahead and, and let John take this question here that really comes from the standpoint of using silver ETFs, but a lot of questions that are wrapped up around this concern. John, what do you got to say, man? Hello, TSP listeners. Hey, today what I'm going to do for the financial question is I'm really going to consolidate many questions that I've received over the past month or so that have all dealt with a similar topic or a couple topics. And that has to do with, you know, when you're worried about some type of a, a major correction in the stock market or going into a bear market, What should you do with your investment money? And specifically, a lot of people have been asking, should you be buying gold or silver in the form of exchange-traded funds or some type of a mutual fund? So I'm going to consolidate all those questions and, and try and get to those answers. So here are my thoughts. And hey, I guess before we even jump into that, let me say there are a lot of alternatives that you can use besides moving to cash if you're worried about some kind of major correction in the stock market. You can use inverse ETFs. You can use protective puts. You can buy into bonds. Some of these are more advanced strategies, and particularly when you're dealing with purchasing options and, and moving into inverse ETFs or playing futures. That's something that I don't uh, casually talk about or refer to the average investor because it's been my experience that People that play with things like inverse ETFs or playing with options or futures, they lose a lot of money and they lose it quickly. So unless you know what you're doing, I would avoid those kind of things. You'll always hear me and Jack talk about moving to cash when we're concerned with something happening in the stock market. And I won't speak for Jack, but the reason I say that is because when you move to cash or cash equivalents, we're not talking about taking your money out of your 401k and, and burying it in your backyard. We're talking about moving into a cash equivalent, which would be like a money market fund or whatever similar thing is offered through your, your retirement plan. And the reason I say to move to cash is because when there's problems in the economy, initially the safest place to be is in some type of a cash equivalent because cash Really, the only disadvantage to holding it is what you're going to lose because of inflation. And if you're holding it for a very short period of time, well, then the inflation is negligible. And also, in most cases, when you're going through a market correction or, and into a bear market, the reason you're experiencing that is because there's a recession going on. And recessions, particularly at the beginning, tend to be deflationary, not inflationary. And so when there's no inflation, your cash is holding its value. I'd also draw an analogy to, you know, a big correction in the marketplace to the occurrence of uh, maybe like a natural disaster or even like an explosion. 
If you hear an explosion, well, I don't know what you would do, but the first thing I would do would be to take cover because I don't know what direction it's coming from. I don't know if the explosion happened because a, a gas line blew up or a plane crashed or was it a terrorist event or is it an active shooter? So initially when that explosion happens, you don't know what the cause of it was. The best thing to do is take cover, keep your head down, assess the situation. And to me, that's what going to cash is like. It gives me an opportunity to not panic, to collect my thoughts and observe what's going on in the marketplace. And then from there, you can determine, is it time to buy the dip and get back into the market? Or should you do something else with your money, like perhaps invest in a fund that's in precious metals like silver or gold? And I won't go into all the options. There are many ETFs that, that invest in either one or both of those. You can also not only invest in the precious metal itself, but also in the gold or silver miners. Uh, so that's a good opportunity as well. But what I would caution is to not immediately buy into a gold or a silver ETF simply because you think that that's going to preserve your money in times of a panic, because that generally doesn't happen. In the prepper community, we tend to have a knee-jerk reaction that says, well, you know, if the markets are down, then it must be a good time to move into precious metals. Well, that's not usually the case, at least initially. And I'll just give you two quick examples. I mean, if you just look recently in the current market correction that we're going through, the S&P 500 peaked out on September 20th, and then over these past couple weeks, it's dropped down and hit a low, at dropping down at about 6.5%. Over that same period of time, initially the first day or two, silver was actually up, but then it dropped down about 4.5%, and right now it's pretty much recovered to, to being about equal to where it was prior to the S&P highs. And this is not unusual. If you look back to earlier in the year, you know, back when the market peaked out on January 27th, we saw a market correction where over a little more than a week the market dropped 10%. Silver followed almost exactly the same pattern, and it was down about 7.5%. So just because the S&P 500 is correcting doesn't mean that silver and gold won't correct. And this is especially true when we have really big, major bear markets. Think back to the real estate and the financial crisis of 2008, or go all the way back to the dot-com bubble in 2000. These were major, severe corrections to the economy, and when that happens, not only do prices in stocks go down and real estate go down, but the price of just about everything goes down because you're in a liquidity crisis. There isn't enough money to purchase things, and so the price of everything comes down, the price of cars, the price of oil, the price of stocks, and the price of gold and silver generally come down as well. As we got into the Great Recession, right when things started getting a little bit choppy in 2007, both gold and silver initially started to rally. As the S&P 500 was moving sideways and down a little bit, we actually saw gold and silver having some substantial gains of around, oh, I don't know, I think anywhere from 25 to 40 percent until you got into the early part of 2008 and then even into about the summer of 2008, gold and silver were doing really well. But then once we got into the third and fourth quarters of 2008, when the market totally fell apart, the same thing happened to gold and silver. In fact, silver fell over 50% that year. And that's similar to what we saw happen during the dot-com bubble. Both gold and silver peaked before the stock market did. I think the, the peak for the S&P 500 and the NASDAQ was around January of 2000. But we had gold and silver peaking about a year before. And then as the internet bubble blew up, you had gold dropping in value, I believe it was about 16 or 17 percent, and silver followed a similar pattern except the drop was much worse. It was down, I think, over 50 percent. 
And that's the pattern you'll see play out again and again. Silver is always much more volatile than gold. It'll drop harder than gold, but it'll also generally bounce higher than gold. And that's because silver has a two-part value to it. One of the values to silver is its hedge against inflation, and the other value it has is being used as an industrial metal. And so when you go through a bear market correction, initially the value of silver that's used for industrial applications, well, that drops along with the economy because there's not as much demand to use silver in industrial applications. And so that price component of it goes down. And then also initially when you're having a market correction, as I mentioned before, it's very deflationary. There's a liquidity crisis. There's not enough cash in the system. And so the inflationary values derived from silver also goes down. You get hit with a double whammy. But the good news is, is that as you get into a recovery, the exact opposite happens. The Federal Reserve comes in, they lower interest rates, they start injecting money into the economy through programs like quantitative easing, and then at the same time, the government comes in with a great deal of deficit spending and, and uh, you know, shovel-ready job programs and all those kind of things. Those are very inflationary, and so that causes the price of silver to rise. And at the same time, industrial applications are picking up. The economy is getting better. More things are being manufactured and using silver. And so the demand increases. And so as the economy moves from a bear market correction back into some form of a recovery, you can see silver prices bounce substantially. And that was very evident coming out of the recovery from the, the last Great Recession. Once silver bottomed out in that third quarter or so of 2008, you had it going straight line up for the next two and a half years, and the overall return was something in excess of 420%. So at that time, coming out of the recession, for those couple years, silver was about the best investment on the planet. Now, a couple other things I want to address about silver. If you've been watching it, you know the price overall has been coming down. Looking at silver at its current price at around $14.60, it seems cheap. It seems really inexpensive when compared to other commodities. But I will throw out this one caveat. As I look at the long-term charts on silver, I think it's likely that it could be in a trading range where it could actually go down to about $10 an ounce on the low end, and then resistance up on the high end, I would estimate at about $20. And so over the next few years, I think we could see that volatile range of silver dropping down to as low as $10 and then bouncing up to as high as $20 and continuing to vacillate up and down in that range. That type of volatility and that range would be very consistent to what we've seen silver do over the last, you know, 50, 60 years. So that would give us a baseline fair value for silver of around $15 an ounce. So, you know, roughly speaking, anytime you can buy silver below $15, it's probably a good investment. But just be aware that your downside for short periods of time in high times of volatility could get as low as maybe $10 an ounce. Now, just to wrap things up, what I've been talking about has been purchasing gold or silver in your retirement accounts through something like an exchange-traded fund. If you're going to do that, that's part of a short to a midterm trade that you would make, and it's not the same thing as holding on to physical gold or silver. Holding the physical metal is a long-term means of preserving your wealth, while investing in gold and silver ETFs is just a short to a midterm trade. You have to separate those two concepts in your mind because they're not the same thing. They're two separate and distinct transactions. Well, I'm out of time for this segment. Jack will probably have some things he wants to add to this as well. As always, thanks for your questions. For the Expert Council, this is John Pagliano of Investable Wealth. 
Yeah, you know, I, I think there is a big misconception that the safe place to run with money during a stock market correction is silver and gold. That's not really true, as you can see. The, all commodities are driven in price by demand. And as John mentioned, when it comes to silver, the primary demand other than speculation, collection, and stacking uh, and store of value is industrial applications. Likewise, the primary driver of the price of gold outside of stacking and you know things like that, collection, etc., uh, and, and banks holding it as a reserve is jewelry. In both of those markets, sales go down when the economy sucks ass. So it's, it's kind of like, it's one of those times where what seems like common sense leads you to the wrong thing. You have to critically analyze what drives the pricing all the way through. The place where silver and gold would be a good place to be you know, invested and kind of hiding in would be when there would be a, if there would be a complete and total economic collapse where the currency itself becomes worthless. And as I've said so many times over the years, that is possible but not probable. The United States dollar, technically, I'm not going to go through them because it's, I don't want to lengthen the show and, and go into a history lesson here, but the U.S. currency as, as a thing has really collapsed five times. And, and most people never saw them as collapses, but they, they were. Uh, just to give you one example of, of basically a default on the currency was the Coinage Act of 1964. When they took silver out of the, of, the, of the coinage in America, it was a default on the value of the currency, but since it had already been kind of pushed toward the fiat, and since there was still the inklings of a gold standard, uh, let's say a fractional gold standard in existence, because we hadn't come off of that you know, in, in the set like we did later in the 70s, It wasn't really seen as a collapse, and, and Moore's Law took over. People hoarded silver coins, and they kind of disappeared from circulation. I mean, even when I was a kid in the 80s, it was, was, you found them, but it was rare to find a silver dime or a silver quarter in circulation. Uh, today, it's almost non-existent, though every once in a while, you find one and wonder what dummy you know, spent a, a, a $2 piece of silver on a 10-cent on a, on a piece of bubble gum or whatever. But um, so... When we look at the purpose of silver and gold, this is why I've said for years, 5% to 10% of your net worth is a hedge against inflation and a wealth insurance program. If you ever have that massive total economic collapse, you have something to rebuild with, something to start with. But the, the biggest reason I suggest people invest in silver and gold is it is a 100% anonymous way to transfer wealth, whether it be with a friend who you're going to buy something from. But for me, more than that, it's one of my ways to transfer my wealth over time generationally to my nieces and my nephews and my, my, my grandchildren and my goddaughter and things like that. Um, it's back to me, you, and the fence post. Now, on a, another note, and I, you know, I don't give investment advice, and this is one of those things that may or may not play out this way. I happen to agree with John that in the coming years, if things go the way that I feel like they will, you will see silver ping-ponging. I don't know if I agree with 10 and 20, but I do agree with the pattern. And when you get something in a ping-pong pattern like that, and you know where that floor is, 
there's an opportunity to every time it hits that floor to buy some either physically or to you know have that that bit of speculative capital set aside in your investments okay that looks like close and if you think the floor is 10 your buy is probably 11 all right and if you think the top's 20 your sell's probably 19 you always hedge on these and you buy that ETF it goes up you sell it you buy it you sell it you buy it you sell it you buy it you sell it and as you begin to make profits, you start taking some of those profits away and putting them in another bucket. And that can be done with any commodity, stock, security, etc. when you recognize that pattern. I'm not telling you we're in that pattern yet, but I do agree. My pattern recognition hackles are up on the back of my neck for this. I think he's, he's pretty spot on. That's why we've had a couple questions lately where people want to go dump all their money into silver. And everything, every single time they've come to me, you know what I've said. Don't do it. That is not what silver is for. There are much better ways to protect yourself against losses in the market. I agree with things like, you know, putting, you know, putting out a put, uh, a hedge fund, a reverse ETF, you know, whatever. There are ways to take some portion and, and hedge against that that are much better than let's just throw all our money into physical metal. You know, the, the time to actually do that, you know, is when that when that commodity is really really down. And and if you've looked at silver over the last few years, it's in a pretty stable ping it's a much smaller ping pong ball bump up and down. So I think there is opportunity in the future with it. I'm not going to stop buying a little bit here and a little bit there. You know, I will buy some, some new silver uh, for for all of my my you know that generational handout I just talked about. And when I do, kind of capitalizing on the opportunity, I'll buy a little bit more for myself. But but I'm not going to be rolling large chunks of money into silver or gold right now. Uh, with that, I have a question on another form of currency, cryptocurrency. Accepting cryptocurrency on your website from Ben Fitz. Hey, Jack and Survival Podcast listeners, this is Ben Fitz with Crypto Gulch, and we've got an expert counsel question on cryptocurrency, which comes from Greg. He says, Jack, I'm looking into the ability to accept cryptocurrency on my website. Can you tell me who you use for accepting cryptocurrency payments? I do not currently have any type of cryptocurrency accounts, so would be starting from scratch. So Jack responded and let... Greg know that he just has a manual process. He got the addresses from his Jack's wallet and he created a form on his website. Someone fills out the form and says they want to pay with crypto and they say which one they want to pay with and then Jack will give them an address. Then they have to manually send in the, the payment and Jack has to manually go into their account and say that they made a payment. So it's a manual process. He sent it to me because he thought I might have a more automated process for people who have websites. And I do. The most basic one that you could sign up for is a service called BitPay. The reason why I don't like BitPay, even though they have a slick looking system, is BitPay only accepts Bitcoin and Bitcoin Cash. Now, Greg, you're brand new, so maybe that's all you want to do. You want to accept Bitcoin and Bitcoin Cash and then go to BitPay. Also, if you are brand new, you probably want to have a way to convert your cryptocurrency to fiat, to U.S. dollars. And the way that you do that is most people that are starting out like you, Greg, they're going to use a service called Coinbase. You can get the app in the App Store. Jack probably has a link on his website, probably next to this show, which will take you to Coinbase to get a Coinbase account, 
it'll give you $10 free when you buy $100 worth of crypto. It'll also give Jack $10. Um, I also have the same thing on, on my website, but make sure that you use Jack and, and Jack gets a referral credit for that. So once you have the Coinbase account, you'll link it to your bank account and that'll allow you to transfer Bitcoin or sell Bitcoin or sell Ethereum or sell Litecoin and get dollars in your bank account. Now, the service that I personally recommend for my website is a service called Coin Payments. I don't like BitPay, as I said, because they only accept Bitcoin and Bitcoin Cash. They also sometimes have really high fees. And so I like Coin Payments. And Coin Payments is a cool service because it allows you to pick from hundreds of different coins. And there's a few good reasons for that, which I'll talk about at the end. But Coin Payments has plugins for all the major e-commerce platforms that your website might be on. So your website might be on WooCommerce like mine. And then there's a free plugin for Coin Payments for WooCommerce. One of the cool features about it is when you go to checkout, it shows a pop-up box which shows all the different coins that you've said you're willing to accept. And the user can then click on the icon for the coin that they want to pay in. It will then show them the proper amount of cryptocurrency. And it'll track it. And it'll send you the order information into your WooCommerce system, just like a regular order. So you don't have to do manual tracking. Once the confirmations and everything are in place, it'll convert it from pending to paid order. And if they don't pay, it'll automatically convert that order to canceled for you. I have mine set to give me a text message. So it sends me a text message and lets me know that someone's just paid. I've just received a payment in Bitcoin for so much Bitcoin or Litecoin or whatever. So it's really kind of cool. They also offer merchant systems for people that might have a storefront. One of the things I use it for, I don't have a storefront, but I do send invoices. And under Merchant Tools on their website, there's a link. You click for Generate an Invoice, and you put in a dollar amount, and then you put in you know, whether or not you need to charge sales tax or shipping or anything like that, and it'll allow you to send someone an invoice, a link that they can use to pay via coin payments, and it automatically goes into your account. So Coin Payments has a lot of really cool features. I do need to throw out that they have an affiliate program. If you want to sign up for Coin Payments, go to cryptogulch.com forward slash coin payments, all one word, cryptogulch.com forward slash coin payments, and that will let you sign up for Coin Payments, and then I'll get a tiny percentage of all of the referral fees, and Jack will put in a link in the show notes for me. So that's coin payments. I think it's a little bit better than BitPay. You can do some other things with coin payments. You can take some coins that you might not want to keep, and you can convert those coins to Bitcoin automatically. Or you can convert them to Ethereum or something like that. So I might want to accept payments from Doggy Coin people, but I might not want to hold Doggy Coin because it's kind of a joke crypto, right? And I, I don't really, I'm in it for the money, I'm in it for the more serious uses, and I'm not really interested in doggy coin. 
but I know there's a lot of people who are. So I can automatically convert that payment to Bitcoin. Um, some other cool things about coin payments is because you can you can accept hundreds of cryptos, you can pick some of the smaller cryptos that don't have a very big community or don't have a lot of vendors that use them. And then you go to that community and you say, hey, I accept your coin on my website. So what do I mean? Let me give you an example. I'm a big fan of Zencash. On their, they're now called Horizon. And I've been accepting Horizon since nearly the beginning. So anyone that wants to pay in Zen can go on my website and pay in Zen. So then I go to the Zen community and I say, hey, guys, my store is open for Zen. You can come buy products from me paying in Zen. And I've had several people from the Zen community go to my website and buy because there's limited places that they can go that accept their crypto and they want to support people that support their community and you could do that for all of the different cryptos that coin payments accepts if you really want to you could go through and you could accept them all and you could go and promote yourself coin payments also has a link on their website where you can register your store to show that you're a coin payments customer and you know it's just another place another place that you can get listed to show that you support crypto. So, I recommend coinpayments.net for you guys. Again, there will be an affiliate link underneath. And also, Greg, if you're brand new, you know, just get a Coinbase wallet so that you can sell your crypto for dollars. And as I said, I'm sure there's a link probably to the right-hand side of this show. There's probably a banner from Jack saying Coinbase. And if you click on that, you can sign up for Coinbase because you'll want to have that too. Now, if you're hardcore, I'm going to suggest you get something else other than Coinbase like Uphold or Circle. But if you're brand new, start with Coinbase. Thanks, everybody. I hope you're having a great day. I'm looking forward to getting over this crypto bear market and get back to the bulls. Talk to you later. Bye. So just to clarify why I do a manual process, I sell one thing on my website, membership to the MSB. Anybody buying that product um, has a direct association in some way with TSP and is probably paying with crypto, not because, oh, look, I can use my crypto here, because it's like, oh, oh, this is TSP, this is Jack, I learned about crypto from Jack, I want to pay Jack in, in, in crypto, and... Because of that, I know that the person that wants to do that doesn't really have a problem with filling out a form and waiting for me to send them an address. What that also does is let me keep that transaction very private. Um, it's not going through anybody's processor or anything like that. It's direct consumer to 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 customer, a uh, customer to uh, to provider. And I, I actually think that in many ways that's that's what cryptocurrency is best about is that it creates this direct relationship. And uh, but it wouldn't work on a website with like you can buy ten different things and you want to just order it and have it shipped and you want so I think Ben's methods are great and it's what I would do if I had you know if I had two products I'd probably do that if I sold anything that like was a shippable product I would set something up like this um, but s selling a membership I think it actually is it, it would take me more time to set it up than it's going to save me because it 
the way I'm doing it doesn't really take me a lot of time. A person fills out a form, uh, and if they already have an account, I just go in there and add a subscription. That takes like 10 seconds. If they don't have an account, I have all the data now to set up their account, uh, and I just send them an email. Say, you know, I, you know, just tell me what crypto you want to pay with. And I don't care what it is. If I don't have that crypto set up in a wallet, I'll go set one up. But I haven't had that happen yet. Um, and just get it, and get, and that's just a new crypto that I have. Um, and if it's a little, you know, I might use it as a speculative thing if it's something oddball. But honestly, let me tell you what people pay me with. They pay me with Bitcoin. They pay me with Bitcoin Cash. They pay me with Ethereum. They pay me with Litecoin. And a few people have paid me with Ark. That's pretty much it. I can't really think off the cuff of anything else that anybody's paid me with Dogecoin and stuff like that. That just, yeah, I had yet to see anybody that's doing anything with that other than playing with it in a trading account. Uh, next up, I have a really great question here for Mike and Sue LaPreeze on um, career planning for young people coming out of the homeschool environment. Like I said, I think they're going to tailor it really well toward that, but I think this really applies to all kind of teens coming of age. With that, Mike and Sue, take it away. This is Michael and Sulaprise with HaloBySue.com, designing the life you'd love to live. For the expert counsel, hey Jack, hey TSP community. Today's question comes from Kyle in East Tennessee, and Kyle writes, What are some good options, tips, for an unschooled teenager looking towards his future? My 16-year-old son is stressing over finding the right first job and what to do to continue his education. He loves to work with wood, and he's recently taken an interest in mechanical work. We have two old Broncos I let him work on. He's interested in going to trade school over college and is also becoming more entrepreneurial-minded. Thanks in advance, Kyle. Well, Kyle, I think you've got things in a good place right now. Yeah. Because your son's interested in looking at careers. So that's a really good thing. Uh, and I want to be too concerned about the first job being the right first job. Yeah, so my first job was babysitting, and it's still the job I have. But I had a lot of jobs in between there because I liked trying everything, which I find to be the best part about being a mom because my kids are like, I'm interested in that. I, I get to try something new. So I had a lot of jobs. Our oldest son had about 10,000 jobs by the time he was 18. He tried everything, too. Our next kid had 14 jobs, she said. She's 28 now. The next one had seven jobs, who's 26. And the next one, who's 24, had four jobs because he doesn't like change. He picks very carefully. So each of your children is going to be different, and you have to get to know them. But the inspiration for that first job often comes with withdrawing resources. Yeah, so this doesn't seem to be a case for Kyle's son, who's interested in finding that first job. Right. But withdrawing resources, we did, our kids started working around 13, 13 to 14 years old. Yeah. We really encourage them, besides working at home or doing chores and earning money, is to get out of the house and earn money. And the way we do that is, as Sue was saying, withdrawing resources. So, if a kid wanted some tennis shoes... It's $20 for the tennis shoes I'm willing to buy, but they want $50 tennis shoes. And I'm glad to spend $20 on their $50 tennis shoes. They just have to come up with the other $30. And there's a lot of different opportunities for that along the way as your kid starts earning more money. But incentivizing them to get that first job and understand the value of a dollar, it's very different if you're paying them for doing chores versus they're leaving the house 
Yeah, I'm not sure what it, why it's different, but it's very different. Yeah, and getting money from somebody else for a job that they're doing. Yes. Yeah, so the first job is not really that important. It's just getting out there, showing up to work on time, learning how to work hard, follow directions. Yeah, I think for most kids, if you're homeschooling, uh, very shortly after you start homeschooling, you you know what it means and what's required of you to homeschool. Or if you're going to government school, you get the same thing. Once yeah. you're in the school system, you you pretty There's much pick up what's required of you. But kids come out not knowing what's required in the workplace. So a lot of them, that first job is really important about just learning what what's required of you. Right. Um, and if kids don't know what they want to do, uh, there are some resources out there. One of the resources that we are just happened upon was a, one called Career One Stop. That's C-A-R-E-E-O-N-E-S-T-O-P, Career One Stop. It's by the Department of Labor, and it's basically an, an interest in skills assessment. And, and it's really fun, even if you're an adult. Yeah. <laughs> we had a fun. We did it with our older daughter. Um, another one is the ASVAB. It's the Army Services Vocational Battery, and it's you don't. It's all free online now. The whole test. You don't even have to find somewhere to go. Yeah, you used to have to go to rec- recruiters to take it, and yeah. now you can do it online. It's not a pass fail. It's just uh, interest inventory, also. So they're yeah. fun to take. Yes. So, but but Carlson already knows. And I, has an idea of yeah, what he wants to do. Not one, he has not two one ideas. but two. Yeah. Whether it's woodworking or mechanical. So, Kyle, the first thing I would say is start close to home. Find something nearby, whether it's a mechanic or a, a woodworking shop or a carpenter that would need some help. Um, and you can start up. Uh, we have a, a lot of neighbors here who do trades, and the kids can start up by cleaning a shop and learning the jogging of the business, but in cleaning the shop, they're showing that they'll show up, that they'll work hard, and a lot of times our neighbors then will give them a, apprenticeship work to do. Yeah, so one of our kids got to iron airplane wings. Did you even know that was a thing? So it's just fun to get out there and let your kid try different things that they might not be aware of. Yeah, when you say iron airplane wings, you're talking about cloth wings yeah, on old, antique old yeah, planes. Yes, so there's a lot of interesting jobs out there. Yes, so uh, as we've talked about before, there's the college versus trade versus business. And where, where does your child want to go? And what, if you're going to go to college, one of the things we recommend, especially for, for folks who money is an object, mm-hmm. uh, would be to go to community college for a couple of years and get your prerequisites out of the way and cost less money. Yeah, and plan early, call in early, take the placement test early if you're going to go to the community college because at 16 you can get some free classes. And if you can get you know 10 credit hours or 12 credit hours under your belt, before you graduate, you've just saved a lot of money. And a lot of community colleges offer trade programs. Yeah, mechanic, welding, nursing, cooking, all H- those kinds H-V-A-C. of things. Yes. Um, and so you need to think about what credentials you need to do, what you want to do. Also, there are places, we have one nearby us, it's an HVAC plumbing and electrical. One company does all three, it's a rather large company, but they have their own school. And so kids go to school, they go two days a week to school and three days work, no, it's two days work, three days, three days of school, of school. Um, to learn a trade. And so they come out as an apprentice, they'll go work with the guy, and they work them through getting their journeyman's license. And in you one get of those paid trades. for all of that. You get, paid, you get good- paid for going to school, you get paid for working, you just have to pass their math test. Get in. It's amazing. It's yeah. what I mean. That's just an amazing way to go, and it doesn't cost you anything. You're getting paid. You're learning, and you have a job when you're done. Yes. So the next thing is, and, and going back to Kyle and his son is, he's got interest in woodworking and mechanics. And I would say, one of the things we talk about on on TSP is being entrepreneurial minded. 
So not necessarily working for somebody else, although sometimes you have to start off that way, but have the mindset of even if I'm starting my career working for somebody else, my ultimate goal is to work for myself. And so if you're going to do that, then there's some skills you have to have. And uh, Kyle's son is 16, so perhaps he has two more years of homeschooling or some combination thereof. And I would say one of the things to do is to learn how to run a business, so how to be an entrepreneur. And so part of that would be learning about spreadsheets. We've talked about that, learning about budgeting, consumer math, learning about something like QuickBooks. How do you do your accounting? How do you manage your books? How do you pay your taxes? How do you pay your taxes? And a big one that kids don't learn and they don't learn in school, how to quote a job. So if you're doing construction jobs, we have a son who's in construction and he has to quote jobs. So he has to go to the job, figure out what it's going to cost, what the materials are, what his labor is going to be, and what his profit margin is going to be. you got to calculate all that stuff out. So those are skills that you can learn before you have to do them in real life. Yeah, and then if you're doing the unschooling approach, you can add elements of history and science to whatever kind of job that you your kid wants to do. So let's say it is woodworking. You can learn all about trees and wood because I know a lot of us, we go to Home Depot and we think there's birch and there's, what is there, birch, pine, and fir, and there's wood. But there's other stores, beautiful smelling stores that have all kinds of wood that are fantastic. So those are a lot of adventures. Go to the forest where they're cutting the trees down. Really learn about the wood and where it comes from and how it's used. It's just, it's a really fun way to add that for the future of your kids' knowledge base. So if they become a woodworker, they have that to share with customers. I think yeah. it's really fun to know those things. Yeah, and look at other things. So on, on, on the side, I like to look at YouTube, and one of the ones I looked at is Essential Craftsman. And if you look at him, he's in the construction trade. So he's, he's in the construction trades and gives you a lot of history of about tools. It's just fascinating stuff. I just lo- love watching that stuff. Another one is in the business side is for parents who are can afford to send their kids to school and are, have that to interest college. Yeah, to college and have the money to do so. We've got uh, friends that we know that they've done a little bit different than that. So they have money that they would invest in in college, but the dad owns several Domino's franchises. And his kids went to work in his franchises. And as they got older, he would buy them a franchise. Now, he didn't buy them Domino's franchises. Because he owns them. Because he owns them. But he bought them uh, Jersey Mike's, so uh, sub shops. So one of his sons now owns a couple of Jersey Mike's sub shops. He's got a daughter who owns a frozen yogurt business. Yeah, I don't know. Yep. Yeah. So those are really fun ways if you have the finances, or you can start your kid out small. We have friends that run a business of their own, and their kids start working for them, and then they run their own crews, and they make a lot of money doing something that they have learned how to do since they were 11 or 12, and they're fast, and they're good, and they make money, even though at heart one of them is a poet, and it's not going to pay him money, and so he works for his dad, and he's a happy person. He, he writes poetry. He does write poetry. But he makes a lot of money. <laughs> Hanging blind. Hanging blind. Yeah. Who would have thought it, right? Yeah. And so the last thing that we would touch on is passion. Helping your kids find your passion. That's one of the things we've done with our children is helping them find what are those things. And that passion may be different from a career. Because you yeah. were just talking about the poet. He's thinking, I can't make a living at poetry. I love to write poetry. But I'm making a great living, and I can do that on the side. Yeah. And so your passion may be different than your career, but a passion as a career can equal happy, happy. Yeah. And uh, we know someone who is a firefighter. That's what he does for a living. 
He went to college for two years and decided he went to Texas A&M and decided not that's not for, him. for me. Yeah. Um, he's a big, hulking guy. He decided he wanted to be a firefighter. And he's doing that, but he's also very autistic, and he does glass artwork, like sandblasting glass. And industrial. Wood sandblasting, yeah, industrial commercial artwork. And he also does tree, tree trimming. Tree yeah, trimming. he trims the big, giant, 40, 50-foot trees. Yeah, so he climbs up into those trees and does yeah. that as a side business. So he's got two side hustles along with a career as a firefighter. Yeah, which is has insurance. So it's a responsible, but you're still having fun. Um, another kid, young man we know, I keep calling him a kid. He's a young man. He's a dad now. And he did the community college, got his mechanic certification, got the free set of tools because he did so well. And he's a mechanic. He works for a company. And he has mechanic stuff going on. He's got a side hustle in his yard. So he loves it. And that's helping your kid find that is really important. And doing well enough that his wife was going to stay at home to be a stay-at-home yeah. mom and be a homeschool mom. So yeah. he's doing really well. Uh, so this has been Michael and Sue Laprise reminding you, and Kyle, this is for you as well, reminding you that don't worry so much about the first job because it probably isn't going to be the last one. Back to you, Jack. So I completely agree with everything they said. I just I, I loved this one so much. I wanted it to also be my segment for this week. So again, I want to reiterate that I think the advice they just gave and all the advice that I'm going to give actually applies to anybody. It ain't it ain't just for people uh, in homeschool or unschool environments. Though I can see why they might be a little bit more concerned. I'm actually going to tell you that the kid that is homeschooled and is looking toward his future and saying, I want to make sure I do the right thing, is probably ahead of most kids that are government-schooled. Because government-school kids have an expectation that I did what I was supposed to do, and now I'm going to go do this other thing that I'm supposed to do, which is college or tech school or just go get a job, and everything should work because, well, they told me it would. And I think a lot of people, especially coming out of college, a lot of young people today are completely unprepared to actually try to get a job and start a career. They have absolutely no understanding of what life's going to be like. I also want to say I completely agree with the, the making the first job the right job is totally just not even worth thinking about. My first job, now not my first way I made money. But my very first job that wasn't, you know, doing work for my grandmother or shoveling snow for the neighbors or something, little entrepreneurial things. My very first job, I worked for a guy named Muskrat Purcell. That's a real person. And I pulled parts off cars in his junkyard. And it was a very, it was almost very entrepreneurial in of itself. I was like 14 years old and I would just go up there, and he would have a list of parts that needed to be pulled and the cars that they were on, and I, I would bring a, a, a small assortment of hand tools with me, and there were some other things up there that if I needed something I didn't have, I could get. But, you know, he would just tell you know, pull all these parts, and here's how much I'll pay you to do it. And sometimes he wouldn't even be there. This was a, a junkyard you probably, if you were a dishonest person, could just go and steal anything you wanted from. Um, but nobody tended to, which is kind of odd. You know, I bet today with all the problems they have in that area with drugs, I bet you you can't just do things that way anymore. So I would go up there and I would pull all these parts and I'd put them in a bin. And, you know, if he was there by the time I was finished, if he showed up, he would pay me. If he wasn't there, I would just go home. And the next time I came, he would pay me for whatever I did that time and the next time. And, yeah, I did end up being a mechanic 
in the Army, which is a little bit linked, I guess, but that's really not why. I just did that because, well, Muskrat was willing to pay me some money. And when I did the math, I was making about $10 an hour. And, and you know, this is, uh, let's see, 14 would have been 1986 or 80, no, 85. 1985. And uh, so, 85, 86, something like that. Anyway, um, you know, I looked around and I realized that I knew grown men that, that had a house. And, 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 you know, kids and stuff that were, you know, making a living, making about that much money an hour, $10, $12 an hour was considered a decent wage for the coal region of Pennsylvania in the mid-80s. And I was like, wow, this is really great. But I also knew that I could only get so much work. There was only so much to be done. And, you know, this is back in the days where you actually picked the phone up and called somebody, and I'd call, and I'd either get him or his wife, and he'd say, I don't have anything for you this week. So it was on and off. So eventually I got real jobs, like where you had, you know, you had to give your social security number and they paid you with a check and stuff like that. Here's a list, a partial list of some of the jobs that I did, um, you know, between the time I was a teenager and then right after I got out of the Army before I really progressed into my career. I worked in a grocery store stocking shelves and doing grocery deliveries. I worked in a turkey farm, uh, a slaughter facility. Uh, basically, as a floor cleaner is where I started out, where I was cleaning all of the you know, like the, the troughs of guts and heads and stuff and polishing the tables and things like that uh, on the killing floor. And I was also loading trucks. That, it was seasonal work to begin with. They did offer to, to keep me after that seasonal work was over, uh, but I decided it wasn't something that I really uh, wanted to be doing, honestly, so I, I didn't take that opportunity, uh, and I still don't regret it to this day. But, I, you know, I worked there for a couple months, you know, leading up to Thanksgiving and Christmas. And I made some money doing that. It taught me a lot about what I didn't want to do. It put some money in my pocket. It was a real job uh, with with you know real men around me, men and women working, and that as they were doing, they were going to be there for twenty or thirty years, and that's an experience in of itself. Um, I worked as a uh, as basically a tire monkey busting down tires. Um, I worked in a warehouse packing boxes. Uh, none of those were ever in my mind what I would be doing for the rest of my life. But they were all ways that I managed to earn an income and learn about life. And I think that even those, those, those lowly jobs had made me better when I made it you know, in my career to higher level things. Uh, of course, in the Army, I was a mechanic. And I went in the Army. And here's the thing about this, you know, this young man likes being a mechanic and working on cars. There's a big difference. Uh, but, but you know, you know, doing some basic stuff with with shade tree mechanic stuff in your backyard and doing it for a living. After doing it for two years, and albeit on really big vehicles and some really harsh conditions, I didn't want to do it ever again. Uh, to the to this day, since I got out of the army, I've never changed the oil in one of my own vehicles, uh, let alone done. It. And I've done some stuff where, like, I, when I, back when I didn't have money, uh, and you know, because I think oil change, you don't save money by changing your oil. You don't. Uh, you really don't. You do it because you want to. Um, but things like brake jobs and stuff like that, you can save money. So I've done some stuff like that since then. But it was always like with, well, psh, I got to do this, that type of thing. Uh, or sometimes the repair would take me. It was easier for me to do the repair at home than get the vehicle to a place for someone to do it for me. Things like that uh, on the road repairs and stuff I've done. But I, I, I you know, I don't really, I don't want to do it so much. I don't want to do shade tree anymore. So when they're talking about following your passion, marrying your passion, your career, sometimes that works really good. And sometimes it's better to keep your passion 
separate from your career, especially if it's not a business. There's an old movie that sucks. It's terrible. It's horrible. Um, it's so old, I watched it with a girl that I was with before I met or even knew who Dorothy was. Uh, but it's called Hope Floats. And it led me to, uh, every time that movie was brought up after that, when it was a big thing back then, uh, follow, she said, well, you know, I remember what she said. Her name was Vicky, and she said, but Hope really does float. And I said, well, shit floats too. I mean, that's how bad this movie was. But there's like 30 seconds of something really amazing in it. This guy, and I don't remember the whole plot, this guy is like, you know, trying to court this woman or whatever, and she thinks he's kind of a loser, he works some loser job, and I don't remember what it was, but when she goes to his house, like, his house is just decked out with woodwork, he has like this gorgeous, gorgeous cabinets and stuff like that, like really high end. Like stuff you'd see in McMansions and what have you. In fact, full-on mansions. And she goes, wow, if you can... And, he, and she ends up learning. He did it all himself. And she's like, well, if you can do this, why why don't you do this for, for a living? I mean, you could have so much more. And he says, and this is the only... Like, don't ever watch this movie. I'm giving you the only part of it that won't rot your brain and reduce your IQ. He says, oh, that would be great. Take something you love and turn it into a commodity so that you hate it. I'm not saying that always happens, but I'm saying it can happen, or you might find out that you were just really interested in it right now. And young people need to understand, like, you might be, like, really into being a mechanic right now, and when you start moving through life and you start looking at opportunities and how much money you can make and things like that, you might end up deciding you want to do something else, or you might end up loving it even more. And you just need to, like, when you're 16, 17, 22, and you're going in toward a career... You need to not be locked into the concept that, well, once I do this, this is what I've done. Because, I, I mean, me, I've been in telecommunications in various forms, but I've done install work. I've been a fiber optic technician. Um, I've been in sales for hardware. Uh, I've been in sales for computer test equipment. Uh, I've done marketing, right, web marketing. I, I mean, I've done so many things in my life. And if you ask me if you could go back and not do any one of them, which one would it be? I'd say none. There's not a thing that I'd say I wish I hadn't done that. Uh, there might be some mistakes I've made in my life, but as far as like jobs and stuff, like like every single one of those added to who and what I am today. And, and that's kind of the approach to come at this with. If you are going to do something in the world of mechanics, man, not just trade school, get some experience with welding and fabrication and get some at least some entry-level engineering courses at your community college because that's where all types of other opportunities are. Because um, I've seen it in a lot of places. I've seen people build businesses on parts for guns that they can make in a machine shop. Uh, one guy, I can't remember the company in particular, but I know, he, and I don't know how he's doing now, but I know at the time, just with being in like Yahoo groups about SKSs and stuff like that, he had some really cool stuff you just couldn't get in at Brunel's or Cabela's or whatever for SKSs. And if he came up with something, and everybody in the group's like, I want one of those too, he'd just make them until people stopped buying them. And you know that was really more of a side hustle for this guy, but he was building a machine shop business and using the cash flow off of the gun parts to make that work. Now, are there any legal issues there? I don't think so, but I, I don't know that for sure. But I don't think the types of things he was doing, like he had a way you could convert an SKS to use sites that looked like uh, an AR-style site. 
was pretty cool, and he sold a bunch of it. And once he had everything set up to do that, he could do it over and over again. Well, if you like cars and mechanics, like I think anything you're going into that's a trade today, whatever the means of production for parts, accessories, and things like that, you should become adept at it. If, if it's more of in the world of 3D printing, then you should do that. If it's CNC, you sh whatever it is to fabricate for that world, you should get some experience in it so that not only could you do it for yourself, but if you, if you, if you stumble kind of into this where a point where like, boy, I could really do this, knowing what can be done lets you farm it out to somebody else to actually do it for a lot less. Maker spaces. Get these kids, and if you're a little bit older and you're an adult, get your ass into these maker spaces. The, the things you can do and the things that are available to us today that weren't available even 10, let alone 20 or 30 years ago when I was in this, in this world, um, God, I mean, there's so much opportunity. Next, I don't care what you're doing. Learn about web-based technology today. At least how to set up and implement and use a WordPress website. Very few young people that they need to be told to learn how to use Facebook. Most of them aren't interested in it because they've moved on to other platforms, but I think there's still too much value in it to ignore it. How to do basic video, good photography, sites like Instagram. Don't ignore that stuff, even if it's just you know building an understanding of it. But if you're a young person today, and let's say this, this kid listens to this and says, well, I'm going to do all this shit, right? I'm going to do all this. I'm going to take... You know, uh, trade stuff. I'm going to go start taking some college courses now. I'm going to learn some fabrication. I'm going to learn some welding. Get a flipping Instagram account going and document the whole damn thing. One, because you're going to be an old man someday and be able to sit down with your kid when he wants to know what to do and go through this stuff and show him what you did will be awesome. But you have no idea what that following could mean to you in the future. If you ask me right now, social media-wise, what is the biggest mistake that you made with TSP since founding it is in 2012 or whatever, was when I set up an Instagram account and just let it lay there, that I didn't start using it. That's why we're building it now. Um, Instagram is so much more interactive. You get so much more response, etc. than Facebook or YouTube. I really feel like we missed the boat there. That's why we're putting some effort into it now. So you don't know the value of that social capital you're building today. Because just by falling through that, your kid's 16 years old, by the time this kid's 20 years old, or any 16-year-old's 20 years old, you can have 30 or 40 or 50,000 Instagram followers, maybe some forum going, a group on Facebook about your subject that everybody knows you found it as a kid, maybe a YouTube channel, whenever you build something, just take your phone. Don't worry about editing and shit like that. Hey, this is what I did. And this is what it does, and this is how it works. And what do you think about it? And if 10 people watch and that's all that happens, don't see it as a failure. Make another video next week. Watch your videos. And when you're like, because I watch videos where I just turn them off, right? Where you're like, you you know, somebody's there, and usually it's kids that, that aren't quite learning, haven't learned to present yet. And even if what they're saying is interesting, I can't listen to it. They're like, um, so, uh, guys, uh, this is, um, Well, okay, if that's you the first time, don't even delete it. Listen to it and go, geez, would I want to listen to that? No. Then go back and do that video again. Watch the whole thing and pick out the pieces that you covered that were right. Make a freaking note card and put those bullet points down and go back in and go, 
boom, 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 boom. Why? Number one, if you keep making YouTube videos, they'll get better if you do that shit. But I don't care what you want to do. Now you're learning a skill. Check this out. You're an auto mechanic. You set up your own shop. Now you got to explain to somebody why they need this part replaced and why they should use this manufacturer's part that costs them a little bit more money. Do you want to sit there and go, well, um, see, um, like the other part works, but no. You want to be like, ma'am, you need this part because it is going to last a hell of a lot longer. I looked at your vehicle. I realized that it's a vehicle that you do take a good, you do a good job of maintaining. And you're going to keep it for a while. You're probably not looking at trading this thing in in two years, are you? No? Great. Then you don't want to put a part that's a two- to four-year part on it. You want to put a part that's a lifetime part on it. Or whatever it is. I'm just pulling shit out of my ass here. But that that will teach you to present. Give me a career, and I'll tell you how being able to present well helps you. I don't care what an engineer. Well, yeah, I'm just an engineer. I sit in a cubicle, and I work on it. No, sooner or later... You have to take that design idea, go into a room, and present it to somebody so that it'll get implemented. And being able to present it where you eat. See, it's not do you know your shit. Because most people, they know their shit. That's what's their shit, not somebody else's. But do you sound like you know what the hell you're talking about? And can you speak without people wanting to put a gun in their mouth and blow the back of their head off because it takes you ten minutes to say something you should be able to say in two? YouTube is wonderful for coaching yourself through this, right? If you're taking electives in school, a great elective to take in high school, and again, I know this was for homeschool kids, but kids that are in high school, a class that almost no kid really wants to take that I think still is around, speech class. Oh, my God. Again, being able to stand up, put your shoulders back, look somebody in the eye, and tell them why they should listen to what you have to say is one of the most valuable things that we have today. And being able to logically articulate your case, not make a slogan. Right, like this is a, we live in a slogan world where when you're objecting to something, it's you know blah 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 blah. You sound like you know you just like you sound like every other person out there. Being able to go through and say this is the situation, these are the problems, these are the solutions. These are past situations where these solutions were used and how they worked, and this is why we should be able to extrapolate from that that going forward it will work. Again, I don't care if you're a mechanic. I don't care if you're a box packer. I don't care what you are. All of these things help you. If you can present well, you can go into a window liquor, liquor level job. And if that's all you're ever going to rate is that thing, whatever that thing is, at least you will end up rising up and being the manager of the other window liquors. And since anybody listening to this, or any kid smart enough to be listening to this especially, is listening to this, you're above window liquor. So since you're above window liquor, that can only do more for you. You want to know how I got good at presenting where I can get on a microphone every day and speak with no notes the way that I'm doing right now? I spent years of getting better. I spent years standing in front of 500 freaking people going, we're going to talk about cable testing. And the first time I ever did one of those talks, marketing made me a, a PowerPoint deck, and I put it up there and started going through it. And I looked out at that audience, and I was like, Oh, dear God, I suck as bad as all the rest of these people. So I'm like, i got to come up with some shit. And right then I started coming up with analogies and ideas and concepts and taking, like, okay, I was a mechanic, and I worked on trucks, and they're really loud. So, oh, we're in, we're in Norfolk, Virginia. These people like NASCAR. Let's explain near and far end crosstalk with being at a NASCAR race. All of a sudden, people, like, started straightening up in their seats and 
rubbing their eyes and getting the sleep out of their eyes from the ten other presenters they listened to over three days and going, shit, this is, this is interesting. He's talking about race cars. You learn that by doing. So no matter who you are and what age you're at, get out and do. But learn to present your ideas. Learn to present your ideas. Learn to have confidence in your ideas. I don't, you know, if I have people working for me, And I say to somebody, well, what do you think they should do? And I will, I would kind of go. And this guy might be smart as hell, but he doesn't have any confidence in himself. I don't have any confidence in his decision making. But if he says, I think we should do this because, boom. Well, what are the consequences if we do this and don't do this? And if you can answer that question, and the consequences of doing it, even if it doesn't work, are minor, we're going to give that shit a shot. You know, unless I did it before and I already know it's not going to work. And then I might, you know, if you're that confident, I might even give you that information. We actually implemented something like that in the past. Here's what happened. I'm not really sure this will work. What are your thoughts? Because that person might actually go, well, what if we did this or that? And we might come up with a hybrid solution. I don't know. But we're not getting there if you can't present to me. So the most valuable skill I think you can develop in a career is the ability to present yourself. Well, think about this. Social media is self-presentation. It's what it is. And it can be ridiculously stupid with every other girl taking a picture of her lips pouting. Like, oh, good God, what is wrong with you kids? Right? Or it can actually be constructive. It can actually be constructive. This is what I'm doing. This is what I have. This is what I want. Whatever. And developing the ability to present that well. Through photography, through text, through video, through audio. So those are my thoughts on that. Again, I think this applies to everybody. But the opportunity present right now for people in their teens to their early 20s, if you'll just do this shit instead of listen to this shit, I'm telling you, you people are the next captains of the world. But if you just keep going along to get along, it's not going to happen. No one's going to do this for you. Almost every single one of you listening to me is either listening on or has a phone that has more power in it that you carry around in your pocket than was available to me when I was your age. Like if I had a Bill Gates uh, salary, I still couldn't go buy. It didn't exist. The ability to do all the shit you can do with that phone. Do something with it. Do something with it. With that, we come to the end of another show. Hope you enjoyed today's show. If you did, I want to remind you that right now the Members Support Brigade is on sale. It is on sale for $30 a year versus $50 a year, and that rate does apply to your recurring renewals as long as you stay an active member. $30 a year for MSB is so stupid cheap. If you are not a member, you really should become one. I really mean that. I'm not just saying that to sell it to you, and I, hey, I'm a sales guy. I'll admit it. I want to sell it to you. I'm saying that because it's true. There's no way that a person in the world of self-sufficiency, self-reliance, independence, and liberty becomes a member of the TSP MSB today, and over the next year, you know, once a week or so, log in and go look at the benefits and look at all the companies and say, am I planning on doing anything like this in the next week or two? And make a note. And then I'm not saying to go just start shopping. I'm just saying, like, when you look, remind yourself of what's there. And then actually use it when it makes sense. There's no way you don't end up next year at this time going, gee, I gave Jack 30 bucks and I got 50, 60, 100 bucks back. It just doesn't happen. 
So like it's you're leaving money on the table by not being a member. And remember, guys, if you do like the work that I do and everything that we bring to the table, um, MSB is how we really pay the bills around here. So consider becoming a member. I also want to offer an apology uh, for some errors this last week. I've misnumbered some things. I think I've played answers twice. I put some stuff out of sequence. Uh, just some technical stuff that I, you know, I at this point should be a master of my craft long ago, and it shouldn't be happening. I'm tired. I'm a little bit stressed. You know, we're coming up on another workshop. It's the biggest one we've ever done. There's some variables in it. I don't like variables. Uh, once we have something down, I want to do it the same way every time because we know it works. Uh, but I thought it was worth taking on these variables. And, uh, you know, we're at crunch time in those last two weeks. So I know that things haven't been, you know, very smooth. It's been a little more roller coaster like. I apologize for that. And I will try to tighten it up for you as we go through next week. Uh, I'll also let you know that um, the week after when I'm doing that workshop, it's not going to be like Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and then Jack's doing the workshop Thursday and Friday, so you're going to have three new shows and two rewinds. One of the ways I'm not freaking the F out right now is I've made a decision that that week will be five rewinds. So they're all going to be rewinds. And because of that, I'm kind of chill. Because I know that when I go at the end of next week, I've got uh, you know Friday afternoon, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday to get all the last bits and bobs done. Uh, so, again, I'll, I'll try to tighten things up. The other way you can always support us, right, is doing your shopping at tspaz.com when you're going to shop online. Uh, you shop Amazon from that, but, I mean, you can pretty much get almost everything you'd ever want to buy online from Amazon. And I've got a great item for you today. It is a German-style fermentation crock. Now, this is one that a lot of people have said, like, this is on their wish list. And uh, they make them in 5, 10, and 15 liters. And I have the 10-liter one, and it's pretty. it makes a lot of sauerkraut. Uh, it makes a lot of escabeche as well. Um, but the 5-liter one, 5 liters is, is a fairly large fermenter. Um, you know, to kind of translate it into American, right? American, 5 liters is like one and a third gallons. So, I mean, that's, I think we get in a prepper world, we want to make giant, huge batches of everything. Um, you know, you can ferment a, a gallon of sauerkraut and put, the, you got four quart jars of sauerkraut at that point. You got plenty of time to make your next batch before you run out of those. And that way it's kind of fresher and every, all the biological activity is a little bit higher. But my favorite thing to ferment, and, and I've, I've done a lot of different ferments over the years, and it's, this one stays at the top of my list, is guess Escabeche. And here's how I make my escabeche. I use sweet peppers, carrots, jalapenos, white onions, and garlic and salt water. That's the whole ingredients list, exactly the procedure and the amounts. You can check in the uh, review that's up today uh, for this product. And, uh, man, that's, that stuff is awesome. And the traditional escabeche that this is based on is uh, a Mexican, Central American thing that's generally just carrots, jalapenos, and white onions. And I added the sweet peppers to, to bring the heat down a little bit and the garlic because I can. So what I do for my garlic in this, I go to like Albertsons or whatever, and in the produce section they have like the pre-cut stuff, which I usually don't buy. But with the garlic, they have a, a clamshell full of this garlic for like three bucks. If you bought the garlic whole head and did it yourself, you couldn't get that much garlic for three dollars. I don't know how they do it. I don't care, but it's all peeled and ready to go. I just pitch a whole package in there. And I leave some with the escabeche, but I take some out by itself, and I just have you know a jar of lacto-fermented garlic 
God, great stuff. Anyway, I brought it around today because, again, a lot of people say it's on their wish list. The uh, the five liter one uh, is on sale for fifty four dollars. That's thirty two percent off, and the ten liter is knocked down twenty seven percent to seventy three dollars. That's a great price. I mean, these things usually sell one near a hundred bucks, and, and the other one over. Um, so if you if you've wanted a really nice fermentation crock, so you're not just fermenting in jars, uh, this would be a great time to get it. And if you know somebody who would like this for Christmas, this is a great time to go ahead and get it on sale. Put it aside, and whoever that person is, things are knocked out. Who knows? Maybe that person's you. But remember, you can always support all the work we do by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. Uh, song of the day today is another. I'm calling some audibles this week and picking some of my own music. Sometimes I kind of miss doing that, so I'm doing some adjustments, and I'm going to start out next week at a full week of a, a theme that will go through one week. Uh, so this song, though, I thought when I was – Thinking about my segment today about young people and looking forward at things, I thought this would be great, and I thought old people like me uh, would, would appreciate it too. This is a, one of the great classic 80s songs, but it's about sort of kind of the 60s and early 70s. It's by Brian Adams, and of course I'm talking about Summer of 69. And here's what I think's interesting about this song. A lot of us that grew up in the 80s and listened to this You know, I think we kind of thought of Brian Adams as actually being, and he's not. Like, he, there's no way, his age, he wasn't much. He, guys, when we were teenagers, he was in his 20s, okay? He, he, he ain't that much older than we are. So there was no summer of 69 for him. He, he, was, he was in diapers, or maybe just out of them, but he certainly wasn't playing his old six-string. That song threw back to the 60s to make it authentic. Like, it just happened to be that since it was the mid-80s, That was about the timeline that would have worked out for it. Well, what I want you to think about, if you're like 45, 55 years old, somewhere in there, and if you listen to this song when you were a kid, check this shit out. You just change the title right now to Summer of 89, and it probably would apply to your life. Isn't that cool? In fact, it would even just work. I bet you he could re-release it as the Summer of 89, change some lyrics up, and remaster, re-release it, sell a bunch of records to us, right? Um, but what I want to talk to the young kids about, it's not going to ever make a good song, Summer of 2018. It just doesn't have a... Sorry, you guys got a boring millennia, or uh, a century to live in. Um, or actually, series of decades, I guess. You know, summer of 18, it just doesn't... Yeah, summer of 18. Like, you're gonna have to wait to like 29 to have a thing that sounds interesting. Um, but it doesn't matter. This is gonna happen to you. You're gonna be able to look back to this time 20, 30 years from now and realize these were the best days of your life. And I made a little comment earlier about youth being wasted on the young. There's a reason people say that. With hindsight that we, you're, you know, the generation before you have, we can look back and we see all the things that we didn't realize we had the opportunity to do. On top of it, we can see all of the opportunities available that you take for granted. You don't know a time when there wasn't a Google. You don't know a time when there wasn't a YouTube. You don't know a time when there wasn't a such thing as a podcast. You don't know a time when there wasn't an Uber or a Lyft. You don't know a time 
when any of these technologies were simply unavailable. Most of you don't even know a time when you had to use a telephone plugged into a wall to use a computer to talk to somebody else. You don't even know that. So you don't realize that these best days of your life come with an opportunity that is unprecedented in history. And one day, you're going to be able to listen to some music from today that talked about yesterday, today, and realize you could pull it forward and feel it all over again. And you'll look around, and you'll see unprecedented opportunity for the generation that came after you. You'll see what we're talking about. And you'll wish like hell they could see it. Well, here's the thing. You can choose to see it. You can choose to grab onto it. And you can choose to do something with it. So that when you look back at a song like this nostalgically, you'll look back at it fondly. Even though I didn't see it all. Because I was willing to always try. I look back to this and I would be really fine if somebody made a new version, Summer of 89. Those were in many ways, the best days of my life, but I'll tell you why. This is how you know you're living life right. When you can look back to a time like that, late 80s for me, early 90s in the military, and say, yeah, that was the best time of my life. The reason it's the best time of my life isn't because I wish I could go back there, but because it brought me here. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't.
who's that? Nobody. I said, who's that? I said, nobody. 